Well, um, in the church calendar, this is uh, Holy Week or Passion Week. This past Sunday was Palm Sunday. Uh, Monday, most of the days are just known as Holy. I think traditionally Holy Monday, Holy Tuesday, Holy Wednesday. Today is Maundy Thursday. That is from the, I believe, the Latin word man, mandatum or the word for mandate. Uh, mandate Thursday, where Jesus said a new command I give you, which is that you love one another, um, even as I have loved you. And um, this is the night of the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. And perhaps in future years, our church will actually have a service on Monday, Thursday uh, going forward. I love having the service on Thursday evening rather than Friday evening because on Thursday evening, it's like everything that's about to happen is still about to happen. So you have time to sort of get your mind wrapped around it. And then as you live through the next 24 hours, you get to think about all that Jesus would have been going through uh, in this weekend. Uh, John's gospel covers all of Jesus's life up to his last week in the first 12 chapters. It's moving pretty quickly. The seven signs of Jesus, and then from chapters 13 and following, it slows down to a snail's pace. 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, all likely take place in the upper room. Certainly most of it takes place in the upper room. Maybe all of it does. That's my inclination. And um, he just goes so slowly, John does, in un unpacking that night. Uh, John Calvin said that Matthew, Mark, and Luke show us Jesus's body, his his actions and deeds outwardly, but John opens up his heart. And in no place is the heart of Jesus opened up more than in the upper room discourse, John chapters 13 through 17. So let's try to use a little bit of sanctified imagination here. Not every word of what I'm going to say is directly from the Bible. It's inferred or some guesswork. Most of it is clearly from scripture, but um, on Monday, Thursday evening, this evening, Jesus uh, arranges for an upper room to have this meal, and the disciples have been walking on this dirty streets of Jerusalem throughout the day, and they've actually come from Bethany, a town just over the Mount of Olives to the east of the city, and they've come from the city of where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. They've come over the Mount, hill of Mount of Olives, come down the hill into the city of Jerusalem through its uh, gates into the city. And they've arranged for this room uh, to have the Passover. And that evening, uh, they get together to eat this meal. And when they come into the room, in this upper room, there's no servant there. Uh, customarily, uh, when a visitor or a guest comes into a home to eat dinner, uh, someone would offer to wash their feet. We think of washing our hands before dinner, which is a good idea. But they thought of washing their feet because their feet were so filthy and dirty coming in off the road where there was animals and all kinds of things. You could use your imagination to think about what all is on the street and what might get on someone's either bare feet or, or more likely some kind of sandal as they would have walked around in this environment. They all sit down at the table for the Lord's Supper. For all we know, it's possible that Jesus and the 12 are the only ones there, that maybe perhaps no one else was even present for this, for this particular meal, this long, slow meal around this table as they sit low to the ground and they lean in eventually after the meal, they lean against the side of the person next to them. And when they sit down, again, using my imagination here, don't know how long it took, but the customary washing of the feet doesn't happen. They sit down and there are no disciples volunteering to 
wash anyone's feet. In fact, it's interesting in Luke's gospel, Luke 22, we are told during the Last Supper, this 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 uh, is a tear-jerking thing to think about. While Jesus is describing the Passover and his death and the, the, the cup of being his blood and the bread being his body, in Luke 22, Jesus has ex- described all that from verses 14 to 23. And then guess what verse 24 says? A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. During the Last Supper, on this very night, around that dinner table, the disciples are debating, arguing, and discussing which of them is the greatest. God in the flesh is sitting at the table. He's about to do the most most earth-shaking transformative act that will ever be done in all of history. And the 12, one of them is a betrayer. They're having a debate about which one of them is the greatest. And what does Jesus say in response? Luke 22, verse 25. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. Let the, so you want to argue about being greatest? Let the greatest among you be as the youngest. And the leader as one who serves. That's where we get the idea of servant leadership right here. The leader should be as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? It is not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as one as the one who serves. I, we don't know where the foot washing took place. It may have already happened at this point, but Jesus goes, listen, you guys are debating who's the greatest. Listen, it's not wrong to want to be the greatest as long as you want to be the right kind of greatest. To want to be greatest for your own ambition, for your own ego, for your own pride, that's clearly sinful. But to want to be the greatest servant, to want to be the one who most loves others, to want to be the one who lays down your life and serves others. So there's nothing wrong with pursuing that kind of greatness. Jesus just says, make sure you've got the right kind of greatness defined in your mind, not worldly greatness. Well, somewhere around this time, they look around. No one has gotten up to wash anyone's feet. There's no servant. So the unthinkable happens. I still think this is one of the most powerful short texts for me in the last I would say in the last two years, this has got to be one of the most powerful texts for me that I've come back to repeatedly. John 13, they get to the upper room. This is John's take on it, his, his perspective on it. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, just stop, just dot, 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 what's going to happen next? That is one of the most epic setups to an action you can think of in Scripture. I mean, think about it. He knew his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father. The devil had put into the heart of Judas to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, dot, 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 what's he going to do? What's the, what's the epic action to meet with this epic setup? Here's what he did. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it 
around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. That is absolutely stunning stuff. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Peter is offended. Uh, I heard today someone quote Don Carson, I guess in his John commentary, where he pointed out, uh, Carson said, there is not a single instance in ancient Greco-Roman history of a superior washing the feet of an inferior. Zero examples. In every single instance in both biblical and largely non-biblical literature of the time, there's not a single instance of a superior washing the feet of an inferior. Every single time the inferior washes the feet of the superior. The only time in all of Greco-Roman history that we, that at least that I've ever heard of, the superior gets down and washes the feet of the inferior. This is so shocking. Peter says, Lord, what, what are you doing? You're going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Peter says, this is wrong. It's kind of like John the Baptist. Uh, you should be baptizing me. I should not be baptizing you. You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you, and the Greek word you here is plural, you all are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Jesus clearly is allowing this to be a teachable moment, but he also has a symbolic meaning behind it. He is saying, Sinclair Ferguson has this great book on the upper room, and uh, I think it may be called The Upper Room, something like that. It's a tremendous book, and it's a meditation on John 13 to 17. And as only Sinclair Ferguson could do it. It's, it's wonderful. It's moving. It's, it's rich. It's edifying. It's, it's a great little book. But Sinclair argues that this, this act of washing the disciples' feet is symbolic of the whole gospel, that Jesus was in a position of authority. He emptied himself, came in the form of a servant, served us through his death on the cross, you know, and therefore he's highly exalted back to the place of glory. Similarly, he was sitting at the position of the head of table. In some sense, he's sitting at the position of, of superiority. He then empties himself, comes as a servant, acts as a servant, wipes the dirt off the feet of the disciples, and then goes back to the place he started in. It's a little mini gospel. It's incarnation, humbling, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension in, in an acted out parable. That's why Jesus said, if I can't wash your feet, you have no share in me. What he's saying is, Peter, if you won't let me serve you, wiping the dirt off your feet, you got to understand, this is not the worst thing I'm going to be doing this weekend for you. I'm not just going to be wiping dirt off your feet. I'm going to be cleansing the dirt off your soul by doing something far more humiliating and humbling for me. And that's coming just around the corner tomorrow morning as this happens on Thursday evening. And Jesus goes on from there. And this night, this meal, we know uh, at this point, soon after this, we're told that Judas leaves. And in verse 30 of John 13, after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out and it was night. So we know that 
before all that Jesus says in the rest of 13, all of 14, all of 15, all of 16, all of 17, all that has to happen after Judas leaves. And Judas, when Judas leaves, it's already nighttime, which will tell you something about the time around this when this happened. Um, this means this was late evening, a late evening dinner that went on for some time. I, I would have to assume it was hours long. This would have started somewhere close to sunset and it would have continued well into the evening because Judas left. It's already night outside. And then the, he, Jesus goes on for chapters of teaching and speaking all the way before they leave the upper room, which makes me think that Jesus uh, in this upper room stays there until late into the evening. I, I don't know for sure. Uh, does he leave it? nine or 10 o'clock at night, I'm not sure, and, and and make his way out to the Garden of Gethsemane. But Jesus and his disciples leave this upper room. They would have made their way through parts of the city of Jerusalem. They would have exited the wall of the city in the late evening. We're told in uh, John 18, 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, the upper room discourse, he went out with his disciples across the book Brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now, Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met with his disciples there. Jesus enters, Jesus exits the city. He and his disciples make the, I don't know, 20, 30-minute walk. I don't know how long it would have taken exactly, maybe more, maybe less. They go across the Kidron Valley. They go up across the Mount of Olives. We know because it was Passover time that there would have been a full moon. Uh, there, there was certainly a full moon out this particular evening, and so they would have had some visibility in that regard. They make their way across the Kidron Valley up the Mount of Olives, and then they find their way to a little garden on the side of the Mount of Olives called the Garden of Gethsemane. And they make their way into the Garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew's account, this is what we are told. Then Jesus, oh, oh, by the way, Jesus has also just warned Peter that he will deny him three times this evening. And Peter denies that. Then Jesus, uh, this is Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, he began to be sorrowful and troubled, and he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Uh, Jesus begins to come face to face with the reality of what he is looking at. And in Luke's gospel, I know that there's a textual dispute about these verses, but I think there's a good argument to keep them included in the text. In Luke's gospel, we are told that at this point, while he's praying, he began to be in agony, and a an angel appeared in the garden, strengthening him. And it says, being in agony, uh, he be, his sweat became, as it were, like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now that... I've often said that, that meant he went and had this rare medical condition where his sweat became blood, which is it is possible. I think it's called some big word hematidrosis or something, where you can your, your blood vessels and capillaries can can burst to some degree, and your blood can actually come out mingled in your sweat. That may be what Luke is describing when he says it was as it were like great drops of blood. He may be simply saying. 
that he, he was sweating profusely and it was as if he had had an open wound and blood was just flowing out. That was how profuse his sweat was. Uh, that, that may even be the more likely way to interpret it. But either way, we are told in John 18, 18, that it was a cold night. It was, it was a cold, cold night, cold enough for Roman soldiers to make a charcoal fire and gather around it a little later when Jesus is at Caiaphas's house, the high priest's house. So in the cold of this evening, Jesus is in such agony, such mental and emotional agony, that he begins to uh, pray earnestly. Let me, let me read the words here. In Luke's version, this is Luke 22. Verse 41, and he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So just picture this. This is perhaps 10 or 11 o'clock at night in the Garden of Gethsemane on a cold night. Verse 43, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. I believe it was one old pastor who's gone on to heaven long ago who said, when I get to heaven, obviously the first person I want to see is the Lord Jesus himself. And then he said, I think with some insight, the second individual I want to see after I meet the Lord Jesus in heaven is the angel who appeared to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, because I want to ask that angel what he encountered when he encountered Jesus in this particular setting. Who knows the kind of agony that that angel witnessed when he was there? Verse 43 again, and there appeared to Jesus an angel from heaven, strengthening him. This is his humanity on full display. Jesus was truly human. He is truly divine, but he's also truly human. He emptied himself not by subtraction, he didn't become less of a God when he came to earth. He didn't become less God, less divine. He emptied himself by addition. He added a human nature to himself, and therefore he came in the form of a servant. And he was weak in his humanity. He needed help in his humanity, and he needed the strengthening of an angel in his humanity. How strange must that have been for that angel to arrive in the Garden of Gethsemane and to see the second person of the Trinity, whom he has worshipped for many millennia in heaven, to see the second person of the Trinity in such weakness and frailty and agony in Gethsemane, how strange this must have been for the angel to think, how in the world am I going to strengthen the, 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 the human divine Jesus? What am I going to possibly offer to him? And yet the angel was used to genuinely help and encourage and strengthen the Lord Jesus. Perhaps he spoke to him. Uh, I, I don't know what he may have done. But he, he, his presence there was an encouragement and strengthening to Jesus. Verse 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Why Gethsemane? Like, why is it in the Bible? Sinclair Ferguson said, the Garden of Gethsemane is one of the most sacred and solemn scenes in the entire Bible. It's one of the most sacred and solemn scenes in the whole Bible. When we talk about the Garden of Gethsemane, we truly are standing on holy ground. It is not something to in any way uh, make light of. This is one of the most weighty and significant moments in all the history of the world. Uh, Jesus comes face to face with the cup. Uh, he comes face to face 
with the cup. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. How horrible must the cup have been for Jesus to actually request in his humanity that if the Father was willing, that he remove it from him? This will tell you something about the dreadful and horrible nature of the cup. It was so horrifying that Jesus, on a cold night, begins to sweat. He begins to sweat on a cold night uh, in an isolated garden on a hillside outside of Jerusalem. He doesn't just begin to sweat. He begins to sweat uh, an enormous amount so that it's like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. He's in such agony. He says, my soul is so full of sorrow that I'm drawing near to dying. He tells the disciples, remain here and watch. In the very moment when Jesus needed the disciples more than any other moment in his humanity, again, he doesn't need anyone in his divinity. He doesn't need anyone. But just like he used the strength of this angel to encourage himself in this moment, he, he could have certainly uh, benefited in his humanity from the strengthening and encouraging of his fellow disciples. And yet when he comes to look for them, they are sleeping. Matthew actually tells us that he goes and speaks to them and goes back and prays and goes and speaks to them. and does this three different times, three different times of prayer, three different returns and finding the disciples sleeping all three times. Um, my goodness, if you've ever been let down by a friend, a, even a fellow believer, a fellow Christian, you've ever been hurt by someone in the church. Listen, I love the church. I believe in the church with all my heart. I, I want to defend the church. I believe that the church is the bride of Christ. I believe the church is the hope of the world in many ways because God works through the church to bring about redemption and salvation. But if you've ever been forsaken, abandoned, betrayed by someone in the church, even genuine believers who failed you in different ways, listen, the Lord Jesus knows what that is like. He, he understands what that is like. How horrible must this cup have been? So what is the cup? Jonathan Edwards pointed this out 300 years ago. Why is there a garden of Gethsemane scene before the crucifixion? And the, the, the answer, I think one of the best answers is from Edwards. Think of, a, think of Nebuchadnezzar. We went through this recently in Sunday school. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are asked to bow down to the, to the statue, the, the, the what 90-foot golden statue uh, representing Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. They refuse. Everyone else bows down when the music plays. Nebuchadnezzar's furious. And he, what does he do? He doesn't just kill them. He gives them a second. He gives them a second chance. He, he wants them to know full well what they're choosing before they choose it. So what does he do? He brings them to his cup of wrath. Nebuchadnezzar's cup of wrath was a gigantic, um, was a gigantic oven essentially of fire and his fiery furnace of fire. He, he says, "Listen, this is my wrath." This is the wrath of the greatest king in the world. This is King Nebuchadnezzar's wrath, the wrath of the king of Babylon. And he says, if you do not obey me, you're going to be plunged into this, into this, into this uh, judgment of fire. That was his cup of judgment. That was Nebuchadnezzar's finite human cup of wrath of the king. Now, it was unjust. He was an unjust king, but that was still a king's wrath. And so he brings Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to see the cup. They get to stare into the fires in that cup so that they know when they make their decision now to bow down or not to bow down, they know full well what they are doing. They know full well what they are facing, and they know exactly what the consequences are going to be. When they refuse to bow down this next time, Nebuchadnezzar says, just flies off in a rage. He begins to speak irrationally. He says, 
heat the fire seven times hotter, and then he gets his, some of his mighty men to pick them up and throw them in. As you know, the mighty men die from the heat just getting close enough to throw them in. And then Nebuchadnezzar looks into that fire, and he sees the three men, but he calls it and says, how many men do we throw in? They say, three, O king, surely three. And he says, well, there's a fourth man in there, and the fourth man looks like a son of the gods. And so he says, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nebuchadnezzar says, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, come out. They come out of the fire. They're unharmed. There's not even the smell of smoke on their clothing. And when you preach on that, when you think about that, the, you can say, listen, that was probably an angel in the fire. It may have been a pre-incarnate Jesus. That is certainly possible. Whatever that fourth person was, it represented God's presence with his people. When you pass through the fires, I will be with you. The flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, your Savior, the Holy One of Israel. When you go through the waters, I, I, I will be there. So God is being present with his people in that moment of suffering, and they come out completely unscathed and unharmed. Well, let's go back to the Garden of Gethsemane. Instead of an unrighteous king like Nebuchadnezzar, you have a righteous king, God the Father. And God the Father is not just the mightiest man in the world or the strongest kingdom in the world humanly. God is the infinite, eternal creator, the almighty one. And the almighty one has his own fiery furnace of righteous wrath against sin. It's called the cup. Throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, you hear about the cup, cup full of fire and sulfur. Revelation 14 says the one who drinks from this cup drinks the wrath of God, and they stagger like a drunk person from the overwhelming uh, power of it. Well, Gethsemane is Jesus's moment to come stand before the cup of wrath, to look into the fires of it, to see what it is, to see the immensities and the infinities of God's, of God's righteous wrath and judgment against sin, so that he can make a fully willing and knowing decision about whether or not he will drink that cup or whether he will pass that cup. And he certainly asks if, it, if the Father is willing that he would remove the cup, but at the end of the day, he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus knows full well the consequences at this point. That's why he's in agony. That's why in the cold he's sweating. That is why he's drawing near to dying just from the experience of this, because God is showing him what the next day is going to be. And in his humanity, he says, uh, not my will, but yours be done. I'm looking to see if I have a commentary around here somewhere. Somewhere around here. Uh, there's a wonderful commentary by William Lane who said, Jesus went into the Garden of Gethsemane uh, to have an interlude with his father before his betrayal, but he found hell rather than heaven opened before him, and he staggered. We are told that he fell to the ground in Mark's gospel when he began to contemplate this cup. Judas gets a battalion of soldiers. This is somewhere over 300 soldiers. They come with swords and clubs and whatnot and torches into the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. Jesus is taken uh, that night to Annas and Caiaphas' homes, uh, the former and current high priest in Israel. And while he's there in the courtyard, Peter and John sneak in behind Jesus, and Peter gets into this courtyard. And uh, we are told uh, this in Luke 20. This is after the betrayal by Judas, of course, Luke 22:54. Then they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. 
But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Listen, only Luke includes a detail here that has always just captivated me. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Only Luke includes this, I mean, genuinely astonishing detail. Peter's within eyesight of Jesus. This is right around the time where Jesus is starting to get knocked around and beat up, apparently. And Jesus turns away from that locks eyes with Peter, and Peter remembers, as the rooster crows in the background, he remembers what Jesus had said. He's broken, and he goes out and weeps bitterly in repentance for what he had done. Next verse. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him, kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him blaspheming him. Pilate goes on to say that he had found no fault in Jesus. Pilate then hands him over to Herod because he thought he was from the same jurisdiction in the Galilee area. Herod wants to see Jesus do some miracle. Jesus doesn't do anything. Therefore, Herod sends him back to Pilate, and Pilate and Herod become closer friends that day because up to that point they hadn't been nearly as close. We're told in uh, Matthew's gospel that Peter actually began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear when he was denying Jesus in that moment. Spurgeon said, man, when, when a Christian begins to give in to deliberate sin, there is no telling how fast and how far he or she will fall. Let us be on our guard against willful sinning. The next day, let me read a little bit more now from Mark's gospel, chapter 15. Verse 3, Mark 15, verse 3. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Uh, I believe it was also Calvin again who said Jesus was silent because he was representing fallen humanity before the judgment. And therefore he had nothing to say in order to justify himself. Now, this is verse 6. At the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. Bar-Abba means son. You know, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon, son of Jonah. Bar-Abba means son of the son of Abba, son of the father. And um, so you've got Barabbas, the son of the father. Verse 8. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted out all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, 
wishing to satisfy the crowd. May we never live with an idol of satisfying the crowd because we might crucify Jesus in the process. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them the son of the father, Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace. That is the governor's headquarters. That's the praetorium. Praetorium is just wherever the governor really was staying at the time. So his praetorium could move. He might have normally had his praetorium in Caesarea uh, Maritima near the near the near the uh, Mediterranean Sea. But during Passover, the, the the Roman governor always came normally, usually came to Jerusalem to, to kind of quell any possible revolts or riots because they're celebrating the Exodus, which is their freedom from Egyptian tyranny while they're under Roman tyranny now. And so there's always a chance of a Jewish revolt. That's probably what Barabbas was. Murderer in the insurrection means a guy who was trying to cause an Exodus to happen now against Rome. Get the Pharaoh, the new Pharaoh off our back. And the, the two thieves on the cross on either side of Jesus were very possibly the same kind of people there. So the praetorium, they, the, 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 they take him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, the praetorium, and they called together the whole battalion. Uh, the, the note here says it could be about 600 men. A whole battalion was about 600 men. It's an enormous group. They called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. It's probably an old... Coat of some kind is a mock royal robe, of course, and twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him. Let's not miss the symbolism that thorns would infest the ground as a direct result of Adam's sin in the garden. And the very God who cursed the world with crowns, excuse me, who cursed the world with thorns would one day wear a crown made of thorns. These thorns were quite serious, uh, several inches long each. One medical doctor just said, if you get serious cuts on your scalp, they can lead to a, a lot of bleeding uh, because of how thin the skin is around the skull. And Jesus would have had a significant amount of blood loss just from this crown of thorns. And the pain would have been constant there. So they closed him with purple cloak, twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. The scourging I'll probably mention again on Sunday this week, but Roman scourging was, was, no, was nothing to play around about. Uh, Roman scourging, the ESV note says that this is a Roman judicial penalty consisting of a severe beating with a multi-lashed whip containing embedded pieces of bone and metal. It was called the halfway death because numbers of people died just from the blood loss that came as a result of this horrific uh, form of uh, brutal form of punishment. Jesus would have been stripped of his clothes. They would have had two soldiers working uh, at least, if not more. Uh, one would probably stand on either side of him. He would be stretched out, perhaps his hands far over his head, and they would begin to strike. I mean, just I want you to think about that for a second. The first whip comes down across the back. It maybe hits the top right shoulder blade. Parts of the whip stick into the skin immediately. 
and they rip down across the back. This would be an absolutely horrifying experience. Just to be whipped with this thing once or twice would, would be horrible. This would have happened repeatedly. They would start on the shoulders. They would work down the lower back. Jesus was very likely completely naked when this happened. They would go across the rear end, down to the thighs, down the legs. There are reports from eyewitnesses, and this is graphic, so prepare yourself for this, that the tearing would become so deep that there would be exposed uh, muscle tissue and parts of people's rib cages would be visible from outside their skin, just looking at it because of the fragment, because of the missing fragments of skin. Uh, this is what my sin did to Jesus. So if I'm ever feeling proud, my sin tore the skin off the back of Jesus Christ. That is astonishing stuff, obviously. By his stripes we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. By his stripes, we are healed. So literally, our sin is responsible for the scourging of Jesus. Behind the mockery is our sinful flesh speaking. Behind the crowd shouting, crucify, crucify him, is my flesh left to itself and how it feels about Jesus and his holiness and his law. That's me. I mentioned before that Don Carson once one time interviewing, I think it was, um, oh, what are their names? Oh, um, I'm not I'm not remembering right now, but but some some major Christian leaders of the last century. And um he he was they were older at this point, and in the QA he asked a question that no one knew he was gonna ask. He said, How have you men managed to say stay so humble with all that you've accomplished? I mean, they'd accomplished stuff that none of us would ever even come within a hundred miles of accomplishing in terms of starting, I think, a major publishing, like some Christian news, uh, some Christian magazine, and all these huge books and volumes of things they'd written and influenced many thousands of people. How do you stay humble? And uh, Carl F.H. Henry, that's who one of them was, I believe. He, They got a little awkward at the question, and then I believe either Carl F.H. Henry or the other guy just blurted out, well, how can anyone be arrogant when you stand next to the cross? And uh, that is what we're thinking about this weekend. That's what we're thinking about tonight. That's what we're thinking about tomorrow morning. Uh, we're thinking about what Jesus endured. This is all happening early in the morning. Uh, this is somewhere around uh, 8 o'clock on F Good Friday morning, somewhere between 8 and 9 o'clock perhaps this is happening. And now they lead him away to crucify him. Verse 21, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Why only Mark includes this? Simon is from North Africa, right? From from Cyrene. Why does Mark say? Oh, by the way, he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. That is like an ancient manuscripts footnote to give credibility to an account. It's saying you can check with these two people. 
Simon of Cyrene may have died by the time Mark wrote his gospel, but his two sons were known by Mark's audience. Otherwise, why would he have mentioned the two sons of Simon of Cyrene? By the way, uh, Simon of Cyrene, this guy from Africa came. Oh, by the way, he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. What? Okay, who are Alexander and Rufus? Well, the, the scholarly, there's a lot of scholars who think that Alexander and Rufus were part of the Christian church and that very possibly Simon himself, after carrying the cross, was later converted to faith in Christ after the resurrection. And it's very likely Alexander and Rufus were part of the early early church. That's why Mark actually refers to them by name, saying, if you guys want to know more about this, go ask Alexander and Rufus because you guys know them. Verse 22, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. This, this really got me a few months ago. The wine mixed with myrrh would have deadened some of the pain. That's what this was for. It was a slight merciful gesture to someone about to die in agonizing death. Take a little bit of this wine mixed with myrrh. Jesus could have gulped down some of that, could have drank, could have uh, could have had as much of that as he could have uh, managed in that moment, and it would have taken a slight edge off of some of the pain in his body. But as soon as Jesus, uh, as soon as it was offered him, he did not take it. Uh, once he knew what it was, he did not accept it. Jesus was coming to bear the full weight and measure of our sin, the full justice of God and the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin. So he chose to feel it in full. He chose to experience it in full with nothing to numb the pain. I mean, I'm not trying to be silly with this. When I go to the dentist recently to get a cavity filled and uh, man, I wanted the laughing gas. I want the Novocaine shot. I want everything you've got. I don't want to feel anything. I'm not, I know this sounds silly, but I, I, I'm dead serious. That, that stuff freaks me out. I, I want to feel nothing. Well, Jesus is, is, is experiencing something unimaginably worse than anything we experience physically or emotionally or spiritually, and he chooses deliberately not to numb the pain of this experience in the slightest bit. You know, it reminds me in Proverbs 31, not the Proverbs 31 woman, but Earlier in Proverbs 31, right before the Proverbs 31 woman, there's this interesting verse. Verse, verse 4. It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to the one who is perishing and wine to those in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. In other words, if someone's in agonizing physical pain, giving them strong drink would help deaden the pain. And that's perhaps even why this was done to Jesus at this moment. And yet Jesus refuses it anyway because he came to experience it in its full. Verse 24 of Mark 15, and they, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. Mark says it was the third hour when they crucified him. I know that in John's gospel, uh, John uh, 
pushes the crucifixion back by a bit in terms of time. He puts it slightly later in the morning. Listen, this is not a Bible contradiction. What you're dealing with is something that happened in that time. If you notice in the Bible, time periods are almost always given in increments of three hours. Once in a while, you'll get a different number, but usually it's either the third hour. So remember, they count up. They start at 6 a.m. and they count up. So the third hour is 9 a.m. The sixth hour is noon. The ninth hour is 3 p.m. And then you have... Uh, the next evening beginning then. And you have the, you have the also, so you have four sections of the day, first, second, third, fourth, and they're all in three hour increments. And then you have the four watches of the night. First watch of the night is, I guess, 6 p.m. to 9 uh, p.m. Then the second watch of the night, 9 p.m. to midnight. The third watch is midnight to 3 a.m. And the fourth watch of the night, the last one is from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Only once in a while do you get something in the Bible like the seventh hour. Like in, in John, when Jesus heals the boy, uh, tells the guy, go home and, and your son is going to be well. When he gets home, he says, what hour did he get better? They say that, I think they said the seventh hour, which is 1 p.m. That's unusual. It's unusual that you don't have a, a rounded number of a three, three, six, nine, et cetera. And um, so Mark gives the rounded three number for 9 a.m. John gives the rounded three number a little bit later. And what they're simply doing is no one has an iPhone. No one has a clock that's perfectly timed with some satellite somewhere that gives you the exact moment of every time zone. What they're simply doing is they're rounding the time in three-hour increments based on the position of the sun in the sky and the basic events of the day. So these are rounded numbers. And so very likely Mark is emphasizing, Mark is leaning towards, you know, if it's if it's 10 o'clock in the morning or 10.15 or 10.30, you could call that the third hour of the day, or you could say it was moving toward the sixth hour of the day because it's it, you know it's, it's dealing with three-hour increments. I hope I'm not losing you on this. I'm just simply saying uh, Jesus was probably crucified a little bit after 9 a.m., okay, just a little bit after 9 a.m. if you put John and Mark's account together. But around 9 a.m. is when this is starting to happen, and maybe it's as late as 10 a.m. when he's finally officially crucified in, in sort of a, how we would think of it, strict time sequences, and uh, he's crucified. And... Um, it says the inscription of the charge against them read the king of the Jews. And there were two robbers uh, crucified on both sides of him. Obviously, Matthew account, records that uh, both of them mocked Jesus when they were first crucified. But during those first few hours before the noon hour, uh, as they began to uh, speak back and forth uh, to each other, um, one of them notices something about Jesus that is so different. Perhaps it's those Father, forgive them. They know not what they do statements or his care for his mother and his kindness towards others around him. As he's being crucified, he sees the placard on the cross. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. He's claiming to be a Messiah figure. But for some reason or another, the spirit grants new life. And one of these thieves is suddenly repentant, Luke tells us, rebuking the other thief for mocking him. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. At noon, the lights go out. Verse 33. When the sixth hour had come, that's noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sambachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put a reed on it, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink and saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. They've misunderstood. Jesus is saying Eli, Eli, or Eloi, Eloi. He's saying a word that sounds like Eli, which sounds like Elijah. So they either intentionally or unintentionally misunderstand what he's saying. They say, Let, let's see if Elijah will take him down, because there was a promise that Elijah would come again. They didn't realize John the Baptist was the Elijah figure who came. 
Verse 37, and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. There are also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph and Sal Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea went and asked for the body. And he buried it with the help of Nicodemus, John tells us, in the borrowed in his own tomb where no one had ever laid. They covered the tomb that evening around sunset on Good Friday. They went back home to observe the Sabbath. No one did anything on the Sabbath. And then early on Sunday morning is when the resurrection account takes place. Um, so tonight, if you hear, if you watch this, it's probably going to stream late tonight. Jesus is perhaps in the Garden of Gethsemane around 11 p.m., somewhere between 10 and midnight. He's got to have been there for at least over an hour, I would guess. He has three seasons of prayer, as well as conversation with the disciples, as well as the time for Judas to come with his with his uh, group of Roman soldiers to uh, betray him. All night, Jesus is going to have a sleepless night, sent around from Annas' house to Caiaphas' house. He's going to be sent to see Pilate in the morning, then to Herod, then back to Pilate. Bounce all around that morning as a political football to be thrown around. He's going to undergo these illegal kangaroo courts, be falsely accused, have a bunch of liars coming in, testifying under oath, things that were not true and exaggerating and twisting Jesus' words, saying he was going to destroy the temple, which is not what he said. Uh, back in John 2, he said, destroy the temple and I'll rebuild it. He didn't say, I'm going to destroy the temple. He said, you destroy the temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, referring to his own body as the temple of God. Early in the morning, appearing before Pilate, much of the scourging takes place perhaps before 9 or 9.30 in the morning, and then he's crucified around perhaps 10-ish o'clock if you put John and Mark's accounts together. The lights go out at noon. That lasts until 3 p.m. when Jesus dies. Tomorrow morning, as we get up and go about our day, and we eat breakfast, and we talk to our family or friends or roommate or children, just know that from about 9 a.m. till noon, Jesus is hanging on the cross. Every single breath is absolute agony as he fights to breathe with the nails against his, the bones and his wrists and his ankles. Around noon, darkness is over the whole land until the ninth hour. God the Father is pouring out his just and righteous wrath against our sin on Christ. In those moments, Jesus became sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Galatians 3.13 says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us, having become a curse, having embodied the curse for us, as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Paul's quoting now Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. Anyone hanged on a tree is cursed of God. That's what Jesus is going to be, be for us on the cross uh, in, in those hours. From noon tomorrow till 3 p.m., let us think continuously about what Jesus is enduring, the unmitigated wrath of God Almighty for our sins. Every breath is agony. When he looks up to see the Father's comforting smile is gone. For the first time in all of eternity, this, un this, this unbroken fellowship has existed 
by the power of the Spirit between God the Father and God the Son, this unbroken fellowship. It's the heart of ultimate reality. Ultimate reality is the intra-Trinitarian love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father has eternally been loving and lavishing his love on the Son by the Spirit. The Son, the Son has been delighting in and honoring and loving and uh, honoring here, not in a sense of eternal submission, but honoring the Father by the, excuse me, loving the Father by the Spirit. And this has been going on for all of eternity. And then uh, for the first time ever in all of eternity in Jesus's earthly life, the first time ever he's in this moment of agony, he looks up and the Father, uh, his, his smile's not there. I'm almost done. I want to read one more thing. In Numbers chapter 6, we have the what's called the Aaronic blessing, the blessing that, that comes from Moses and Aaron. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus sh you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, you, you know this passage, The Lord bless you and keep you. Now, what, is it, what does that look like, the Lord blessing you and keeping you? Here's what it looks like. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The ultimate blessing of a Jewish person was this beatific vision, this looking up and seeing the, the smiling countenance of God, metaphorically speaking. Uh, him lifting up his face to shine upon you, lifting up his countenance upon you to give you grace and peace. The opposite of this, the ultimate curse would be for the Lord curse you and cast you out. Instead of the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord curse you and cast you out. Instead of the Lord make his face to shine upon you, it's may the Lord forsake you and remove his grace from you. Instead of lift up his countenance upon you, it's may the Lord abandon you and give you nothing but, not peace, but um, torment, uh, uns being unsettled. Well, Jesus on the cross got the opposite of the ironic blessing. He got the curse. He got the father's forsaking him, the father's abandoning him because he stood in our place for our sins. Tomorrow, I hope it hits us like uh, like it maybe never has before, especially around noon to 3 p.m. That out of the darkness on the cross, Jesus cried out what R.C. Sproul called the scream of the damned because he was experiencing what hell is, the very wrath of God. And when he screamed out, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was he was crying out the scream of the damned so that we would never have to cry a similar scream in hell because we would never have to face that wrath because we had been rescued by our God. Let me pray for us. Thank you so much for watching. This is the center of the Christian faith. This is the center of everything that we believe as Christians. Heavenly Father, we can call you just that. We can call you our Father because Jesus on the cross was forsaken by you. He was abandoned by you. That we might never be forsaken. That we might never be abandoned. He was momentarily kicked out so that we might be brought in eternally. He was judged so that we would never be condemned. He experienced our cosmic justice, divine justice that we deserve so that we could experience eternal union and communion with the triune God. God, we are humbled. We are amazed. We're astonished by what Christ endured for us. Help us to never take it for granted. 
pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.